It's a brave question to ask in this kind of forum, but I think sticking with the... Check for pulse. Alright chaps, well, welcome to episode 21. So we have Wei Kiong. Hey. And uh, we've got Thomas back. Hi Thomas. Good evening. Yeah. Thanks for coming back. (laughs) Yeah, Ed's not here today. He's, um, He's busy. But then you did just do a show last night, didn't you, you guys? Yeah, it was it was great. Um, we had a, our second transatlantic uh, episode with a um, GP called um, Michael, who he basically wrote his own um, open source electronic patient record um, because he found nothing out there that he could um, afford and works for him. So he he just did it, and it's it's a great story to hear. And there, are, I think, up to ten uh, similar type practices that are using it already. So. Yeah, well worth really? a listen. I mean, yeah. I, I've only listened to the first 15 minutes, haven't had time today, and I was gutted I couldn't be there, but uh, yeah. that sound, sounds really cool. Um, yep. Sounds really good. And I guess with that, I don't know if you spoke about data, but since Thomas is here and he's our data man, we should uh, we should probably data end man. up talking about data. Yeah. Well, I haven't heard that episode yet, but I mean, I mean the, the, the word open source just sounds very attractive. <laughs> So um, I mean, I mean, I mean, what, what do you think about? I mean, I mean, quite. I mean, you you you, you know, around NHS, there's the lots of um, new innovation. I mm. mean, around IT, and some of them are they cr- try to create interfaces that makes patient care easier mm-hmm. or more efficient in terms of healthcare delivery. Yep. And some of the IT is kind of geared towards patient data, patient data collection, data use. It's just only a couple of days ago, I got a letter from um, the local clinical commissioning group. I'm asking, do I want to put my data on this summary care record? Ah, summary care record. Ah, uh, right. And what did you say? Um, well, given my research background, I would say, yes, I want to put my record well, into the summary care record, although, I mean, that there will be other people holding a very different views. I mean, I mean, I mean, the, the, the valid point they make is, let's say if you are kind of uh, unfortunate enough to get wheeled into research room unconscious and you do want your doctor able to access, I mean, if once they're able to establish your identity to, to, to look at your past medical history, your allergies quickly, that way, I mean, I think it, I think you have to be very clear about what's in the summary care record, and as you say, it's a centrally held record about you if you're an NHS user, and it's not. Uh, and I'm not sure who maintains the input into the summary care record, but I think it's probably via your GP. So you've got allergies, uh, you've got yeah. medi- medications, you've got basic demographics. I am not sure whether you actually have any um, coded diagnostic information the in the original spec of the summary care record i think in the next version of the extended summary care record you're meant to have that but at the current version i'm not sure um and and in fact it has just hasn't taken off as much as people expected it to for all sorts of reasons but say let's just pretend it does have sort of coded information about what diagnoses you have and what medications you're on and such like would you be happy to have your stuff centrally held and do you think that there are any problems do you think people are, you know you, your colleagues and and joe public and they'll be willing to have all of that stuff centrally held by the nhs not in their control well but now the medical medical notes on paper they're kind of centrally held in a way by the hospital trust yeah, yeah, but it's much harder for any third party uh, to get into, uh, have to break into, you know, Iron Mountain or something to get to your notes. Well, I it, mean, there the, are the two, the two points there. Well, the, firstly, the secretaries can't even find the notes and the record keepers can't even find <laughs> no, the that, notes. That, How are you? That's actually, that's actually dangerous. I mean, I mean, when I was working clinically, the, the problem is, you know, you've you got patients coming into A&E. Actually, you know who they are, but the notes are kind of... Um, the paper notes are sitting in some kind of a trust warehouse that takes at least a few hours, but sometimes even days to, to retrieve the notes. And you need that past history now to make a decision 
I mean, on that point, that is dangerous. But then on summary, summary care record, the other point is, I mean, at the moment, actually some form of data is already held centrally, electronically, in the form of HES, hospital episode statistics. So uh, but some... it's, it's, yeah, that's true, yeah. but that's very different because the, the doctor on the street, the person in the hospital, the, the, you know, the snooping um, nurse or, or, or doctor who wants to spy on someone does not have access to HES. Yeah? Well, well some summary care record, if you've got an NHS card and you have been trained on the summary care record, you, you theoretically can get to it. Yeah? So that's very, very different from HES. Yeah, but then, I mean, if this summary care record can only be accessed by registered user, that means you can potentially have, have a, a, a log of who accessed what data. Oh, no, there is a log, absolutely. Yeah, but, so the, but you, you, who's yeah, going to look at it? Yeah, that's the thing. There's a lot of things like that. Like, But, yeah, who's going to look at it? Do they have very clear things in place to track? back if a pattern of behavior is not right compared to has which is like there's so many uh things you need to jump through before you even get permission to get to that data and and you know so it's slightly different i think the summary care record is meant for clinical use uh has is not but do you not think if you have your health care provided by the nhs that the nhs has a right to know about everything about you oh goodness wow <laughs> I wouldn't say it's a right to know everything. We can go I mean, somewhere else. I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, I mean uh, no, no. Go to I, I don't... <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the part of the problem is, I mean, to deliver clinical care, you do need some kind of a past history of the patient that needs to be accessible. Quickly, oh yeah, absolutely. Especially in emergency. So it's a balance between privacy and the practicality of, of using data. Yeah, so like, it's, it's kind of um. Well, if if you if you have absolute privacy, so every time the patient comes in, the only way to find out about that patient is to take a full history, and in some circumstances, that will not be possible. Yeah, but then your what the information you get is from the patient, and mm-hmm. whilst it's necessary to take a history, and I'm all for you know clinical skills, um, sometimes it's good to know in certain circumstances, particularly. I mean, in neurology, we see a lot of functional problems and. And even some psychiatric conditions that, that sort of predispose people to having particular beliefs about their health. It's it's really quite essential that you do have other doctors' notes and it can save a lot of time. The worst though, I do agree with you because the worst thing as a medical registrar on call is to have someone come in in an absolute heap into recess. And, you know, they may have had uh, cancer, they may have been on chemotherapy and you don't know what cancer, you don't know what chemotherapy and they're dog sick and you just really don't know what to do with them. You need that information. You can't really take a history in that circumstance. So I agree with you. It's absolutely essential that the doctors have. And that's why I think that maybe if you have your treatment in the NHS, really the NHS should know a lot about you. And if you give up control and let patients control their record, well, you know, maybe people are going to be more zealous about controlling their record than others. Maybe they'll allow you access to certain things. Maybe they won't allow you access to other things that may impact on, on not just their care, but the care of others. Because in A&E, you're triaging everyone else's care as well. I think you, I think you have to be very careful um, not to mix things. Up. The summary care record was not created so that they know how to use your your clinical information for commissioning for research. The summary care record was a clinical record yeah and that's very different from what you are talking about which is extracting much more detailed uh, information about healthcare utilization healthcare use to actually guide how to spend the money how to design the services you mean what thomas then, is talking about uh you mean yeah, has data so, yeah so that's like that's like has data and then and then of course you got the other level which is data much deeper detailed data beyond the summary care record like the kind of things that you were talking about, Stephen. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, 
what does this particular doctor think about that? None of that is captured in a summary care record. A summary care record is exactly what it says. It's a summary. Yeah, but that's and, the way things are going. I'm just sort of thinking into the future about having EMRs, EMRs being open, people mm. linking into different systems. And the summary care record, I know, wasn't designed for that. And it's very minimal and it's basically just dem- demographics. It's a, it's, it's a minimal data set you know, yeah. of, of, u- of what they consider the most useful pieces. But do you know what's interesting? And I think we'll put this into the show notes. So um, there's a group led by uh, Professor Grenold, I think that's how you pronounce mm. the name, that looked into people's behaviours around using the summary care record. And I think they, they performed a, a, a qualitative um, study on several A&Es who have access to summary care records to see whether they used it. And what's very interesting is that uh, the same themes came up and up again of why people don't use it. Mm. Number one, it's because of the security behind the summary care record uh, which requires effectively a password, your card, for you to log in and log out. Mm-hmm. People just found the time not worth it. Mm-hmm. And especially you have to walk to a computer to do it and then come back. So, you know, you've got that thing uh, that that the whole usability uh, and the design of the environment issue. And then the, the other very interesting issue is that doctors did not trust the information in the summary care record. Isn't that fascinating? Because the only people who have access to update the summary care record, if I understand correctly, is actually the GPs. And as as, as we all know, uh, it's the most complex patients which have the most um, uh, healthcare providers in primary care, secondary care, community care, which are the ones that end up coming most into hospital. Hmm. But the, all those other people do not have access to update the care, summary care record. So in the end, people say, it, it's such a faff to get to the record. I can't trust what the record says. So why bother? Yeah. I mean, should, should that not be? Okay, I mean, I mean, all, all this discussion in the NHS about electronic, I mean, I mean, I mean, the first question is, should we stick with paper or should we actually move towards electronic? And secondly, if we're going to move towards electronic, is a matter of who should be keeping those records up to date or should it be GP only, as in summary care record, as you said, or should it be all healthcare professionals. I'm glad you brought yeah. that up. Cause... I mean, there's, there's two issues. I mean, I mean, the electronic versus paper one. I mean, some people talk about this, I mean, privacy and data security. I mean, people think that electronic ones, they are more prone to be hacked. But then you are assuming that papers can't be stolen. And of course, data, I mean, paper, got it's, it's, it's bulky, it's slow to retrieve. You've got all these cons as well for paper records. So it's actually two two well, two problems in that debate. Well, it's a brave question to ask in this kind of forum, but I think sticking with uh, <laughs> sticking sticking with paper is is just idiotic. Makes no sense whatsoever. I just I just can't see a benefit for no, sticking no, with paper. Well, no, neither do I. But people use that as an argument that I mean is I mean people think electronic notes are inherently less secure than paper one. Actually, it's been, it's been used as an argument to I mean, not to bring. Well, it's it's back in this NHS IT time, NHS FIT, yeah. I think that that, that that argument's a little outdated, and if yeah. pe- if people if someone uses that argument with me, I think it highlights to me straight away they have no idea what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, you can access an online record if it were in the public domain, i.e., on the internet you can access it and it may be encrypted which is obviously good but that's not where we're proposing to store things you know usually things are are on encrypted servers if it's on the n3 network it's within the nhs and not accessible by the public internet unless uh, there are some hooks um, yeah. into that system which currently i don't think there are many yeah. and i think the benefits of being electronic far outweigh any potential oh. security drawbacks and paper you can't encrypt a piece of paper and uh, pieces of paper can go missing can go lost mm. um can't be shared and they can get stolen oh yeah absolutely i mean the, the days when we're doing ward rounds at that time cover your pages of the notes missing yeah well you find a page of someone else's notes in uh filed in the wrong place oh yeah happens. yeah so Thomas, oh, yeah. so what was your decision in the end about summary care record to say yes or not? I personally say yes. I, I uh, think that the benefit outweighs the, the risk to be honest. I mean I mean if I brought if I well if I was brought in unconscious into A and E, I want my doctor to be able to access the relevant information quickly. Not that I've got lots of irrelevant information to be honest. 
Well, there's not that much information in the uh, summary care record, but they are planning to extend it. And I probably, think... I mean, at, at the very least, I mean, you you really should know whether the patient is allergic to anything at all. I mean, let's, but, but let's how, say, how, but how do you know if that is up to date? Well, true. I mean, you you never know whether it's, it's the most up to date. Yeah, but, I mean, but, can but, they have a? I mean, it's quite commonplace for. They're talking about. I mean, that. Data may not be up to date versus no data. Which one would you like? I personally in favour of some data. If they were yeah. allergic to penicillin twenty years ago, chances probably, are uh, yeah. they're still allergic. Or chances are they were never allergic, and someone's just recorded it wrong because they had a rash <laughs> when they had glandular fever or something. That's the usual thing, isn't it? Yeah. But absolutely. I mean, it's it's quite um, commonplace in in these application databases to have an updated app field you know, held within the database itself. So, you know, if it was updated six years ago and you know the patient said they were in hospital last week, well, you know the data's not up to date. Whereas if it was updated yesterday, I think you can be pretty sure that you've got, you know, a good set of information. That There may be bits missing, but, I mean, that's probably, that's a, a sort of data collection and updating problem. And for me, it makes sense to actually forget about this care summary record and hospital episode statistics because they are basically silos of information that there are divergence basically they're, they're going to have an evolution all of their own there are different states there you know some are more up to date than others and you've just got these different databases with different goals with different sets of information that all really should be pointing to the same patient and the same basic data set mm. But they don't. And I, I think it makes sense to, to, if you have an EMR, to base your, you know, summary care record or whatever, or, or basically what we're talking about is the, the purpose, I believe, of the summary care record is to provide doctors in an emergency situation or, or in a situation where they need to get a summary very quickly that they can find out about the patient. Now, that could just be a particular standard distilled from a bigger set of data held within an EMR that was open and used a commonplace between all sorts of clinical systems. Yeah, there, there are many different models of so-called interoperability. You've got the you've got the model where there's one record that every, everybody feeds into. Yeah. Uh, and you've got the one which multiple um, providers have their own records, mm -hmm. but then they give uh, the ability for each of the other providers to have a view of that record. Mm -hmm. For example, if you're in A&E, you can view the GP record, you know, yeah. uh, i.e. the full GP record and vice versa. And that model is actually um, being rolled out in quite a lot of places in the country already. I mean, in like in most places, London tends to be at the last of these things. Um, but yeah, in a lot of other places, they've the, the health economy, a group of CCGs, GPs, hospitals have come to the other and agreed all the data sharing, information governance arrangements um, to, for this to actually happen. And basically, what you need to do is when you see the patient in A&E, all you need to do is ask, can I see your GP record as in a verbal consent? And then it just the GP record effectively appears like another tab or another page in the hospital's EMR. And and that's that's how that's one of the models. And then in, in other countries, it's quite interesting because in other countries, I think um, something that I recommend people read if they want to read about this. There's this um, report um, called um, "Health Information Technology in the United States: Better Information Systems for Better Care." It was just written a few months ago, but it's a very good review also on how different countries in the world are doing it. And the way that you said, um, Stephen, like a centralized record. Uh -huh. Some countries are actually going towards that model. So each hospital wouldn't have their own record. Everybody feeds into one record for the patient. Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, there are clearly different models, clearly pros and cons for each one. Let's stick on this for a sec, because I think this is quite an, an interesting topic. And I've got a question. Let's got Steve finish first. Yeah. <laughs> no, in, in some respects, I think this problem has been solved. Uh, and it was solved years ago by the programming community. And I always say this, and I know it's a bit cliche. But, um, you know, version control with software development just just for me seems like a really good fit to updating something like this. So if you had Git, for example, and a centralized repository like GitHub or it could be Health Hub or whatever you want to call your company, um, you know, they could hold records uh, on behalf of patients. And if anyone wants to share, uh, 
something. Um, they the, the patient can allow a particular caregiver access, but there will be obviously policies for what to do in emergency situations. Of course, you can just have access if you need it. Um, and if there are any changes, there will be logged the changes and changes can be submitted. So the patient then has the ability to be able to change their own record, but they don't go in and just delete stuff. So if they've had depression or, you know, they had a suicide attempt and they don't want their insurance company finding out or, you know, just something like that. Um, and uh, they're worried about the insurance company, so they want to delete it, which would obviously be quite detrimental to their care in the future, and that shouldn't happen. They can submit what's, you know, in the program community you would call a a pull request. They make the changes and submit it, and then it's up to the GP to decide whether to commit that change and make the change in the record, or whether to, to maybe modify it and give it a bit more context and pad it out. What do you think? I, I the, the the thing that you have not addressed at all is about what data standards would you use because uh, you can't okay. yeah right data standards are, are you talking about how you code information that that is one thing uh, how you code information like how do you categorize allergic resp- allergic disease in, I, uh, sorry allergic an allergic reaction I mean these things are all different standards even something as simple as a a, a blood pressure. It's not as simple as that because a blood pressure recorded by a cuff, which size, by what machine, all that metadata is also quite important. So the, the whole data definition of to enable what you are thinking of doing, that's not in place at all. So it's not, it's not the same in the sense you can have version control of a piece of text. You can have version control of, of, of you know, uh, yeah, like, you know, collection of paragraphs in a Word document. Mm-hmm. It's very, very different for when you're talking about structured information. Well, how is it, though? Because uh, essentially, it is just all text, isn't it? Yeah, but what the text means to each system might be different. Yeah, and, and the more I think about it, and this is obviously is an incredibly difficult problem to solve, but the more I'm in favour of completely data-driven approaches, just because I think that it's an impossible task to categorise medicine. You know, as we've seen from the overinflated read codes, you know, there are thousands of them. You know, very few of them get used. And um, and often they don't really fit the situation um, in, in the way that they should. And then classification of diseases also change. Mm. So perhaps what we should be keeping is data. And from the raw data, you can then update. This is very hard for what, what doctors' opinions are. So let's just like park that for a moment because I don't really know how to solve that problem. So, But let's always go to the classical myocardial infarction because I think it's something that everyone really understands. So myocardial infarction years ago was ECG changes, essentially, in it with a compatible history. Mm-hmm. Um, but now a myocardial infarction is, is slightly different. The, the diagnosis of it, we can make diagnosis of myocardial infarction that we couldn't have made years and years ago because there were no ECG changes. Now, if you had data, just the raw data, like a troponin rise or a regional wall motion abnormality on an echocardiogram or a compatible history, you could then construct from the data years later, even when the disease classification has changed, the likelihood that that person suffered a myocardial yes, infarction. Yes, but, but you, you mentioned something like troponin. A value yeah. of troponin from one lab to another lab to another lab to a machine, they're all different. Yeah, but you need to store that metadata within Yeah, yeah that's what yeah. I mean. You need to store the metadata and you need to agree what metadata you're going to store. And that is what, that's the problem. I don't think you need to agree. And this is where, this is where I just think it's, this is, I think medicine is changing so rapidly. The advances in technology are coming so quickly and the classifications of diseases are hence changing so quickly that I think it's impossible to sit down with a committee and agree a group of standards that keeps pace with that. And I think it's detrimental to try and do that. If you think of something like HTML, for example, you know, the the standards of HTML and the sort of possibilities of what, what we could do with sort of all of these technologies is being held back by the fact that it needs to be improved and accepted by a committee. And I think that the more you have a data-driven approach... And the more everyone tries to adopt the best possible standards, um, standards can be set by individuals and people can just copy what works and what is good rather yeah, than having to see, conform. But does that work for something as big? You you, you, I, I, you know, standards to a certain extent, I know, can hold back innovation, but it can also be a platform for innovation because 
in the sense that if you define the kind of rules to play with, people know what they need to do to make the best out of it. When you do not set the rules, what happens is that you got you will end up with what the situation we have with loads of different um, uh, systems that don't talk to each other, uh, people who can't possibly enter the whole uh, market of creating health apps because you know, everyone is starting with a different data structure. On the contrary, I think I disagree. I think if once you open things up, once you open things up and you allow people to work on things themselves, um, the benefits of sharing data, being open and clear will become quite obvious to people that I think that, you know, the way it's heading, I think that you, you won't see what the kind of situation that has developed. And I think the reason the situation we have right now is because... No one can share data between each other because individual developers are locking things down, not sharing their code, and are trying to make a profit out of uh, out of software development. Um, and and they're sort of fearful that that if they give people their code, they won't be able to do that. And data sets are very restrictive. I think that's part of the reason it is very expensive to conform to all of these standards and produce them. That I think is prohibitive. I think you'll see well, the opposite. Well, no, it's it might it might cost money to maintain the standards but not to use the standard depend on who's owning the standard like like the blue button approach in the US which is a, a, a data set of patient information that is is defined for example uh, blood tests or diagnosis or what have you and then you got an army of app developers out there who are now able to give patients uh, the ability to view this coded uh, this coded data in a way that makes sense to them, which they can then link to other useful resources on the internet and stuff. If not, every single app developer, I mean, where are they going to get the information from? Patients are not going to enter the information for them. If you, all the a, a massive amount of electronic medical records uh, providers in the US has, has signed up to the blue button approach. And th- then what happens is you've got these defined things where a lot of other app developers can then come to build upon. If you didn't have that, people can't build anything. Yeah, but that's, is that standard agreed upon by a yes, committee? Yes. I mean, I it's, think... It's, it's, it's so that, that's why, to me, there's a role for a for somebody that will have to make the decision at the end of the day. So if the so gastroenterologists you, um, discover a particular thing about Crohn's disease and they update their their diagnostic categories, Crohn's disease with X, Crohn's disease with Y, how long will that change take to filter down into this standard? The question is, how, does it, I mean, the question is, if does it matter that it doesn't filter down straight away? Because... I mean, I mean, what I'm saying is that without that, you've got the current situation now. You ask any developer on the street, you know, who want to develop a healthcare app, they have nowhere to start. There's nowhere to... Yeah, you know, no, I, I agree with you on the point that I think there should be standards. Um, yeah. But I, I disagree that where I think these standards should come from, I think, is where we disagree. I don't think they should be uh, made up by a committee. I think that physicians have a primary role here. So if you are a gastroenterologist or cardiologist or a surgeon, you should... Uh, help to maintain data sets and, of course. and the cardiologists yep. already do this um, there are interested parties who who define the set of data the, it's an agile process year on year that, that data set changes and they are the best ones to know what is useful to them and I think that's where it should come from and I don't think it should be proposed by a sort of top down committee like well, the then, NHSIT you know, I don't think it should come from, yeah, from but, anyone but, but but then if you want to maintain a standard, let's say, I mean, for cardiovascular disease, are you not forming a committee of cardiologists? Yeah, to, exactly. To maintain and, and that standard is, is a committee as well. No, Although, I mean, it's not a committee, it's a community. And there's a big difference because, okay. because no one really needs to approve it. It's, okay, it's done. Um, it's an ephemeral process. It's agile. Things get updated as the as the diagnosis uh, diagnoses and the medicine progresses, so if there's a new classification of a disease, that data set will automatically be updated. It doesn't need to be wait for someone who's not in the world of cardiology to be approved. Yes, but the, the, the problem is, I mean, it, it, I mean, the data has been collected. I mean, if you're thinking about for patient delivery, that that may be okay. But you're thinking how for research and for international comparison. That requires a international well, a, a, a sta- international standard, yeah. so that what is coded in this country. So let's say if I say this patient has 
a say celiac disease in this country uh-huh. is the same diagnosis as another doctor in let's say Brazil saying that patient has celiac disease, and then you can begin to understand why. But who is research. that decided by? Just think about what you said there. So who decides on what the diagnosis of celiac disease should be? Whether it's a jejunal biopsy, whether it's, you know, tissue transglutamase, whatever it is, who decides on what is celiac disease and what isn't? Just a class of person, who does it? Well, good question. It's not, a, it's not a committee of people interested in IT, no. I tell you that. It's physicians. Well, and, 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 and pathologists. Okay, you, number one, you've got international bodies who, which kind of set the definition, case definition, in, 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 in what I say, I mean, case definition. And the reason that I can actually do the research that I have done is because the data is, is strictly coded to yeah. ICD. Yeah, and you do lose something. You do lose something you, oh yeah, when, you, when you, you lose, don't code you lose, things you like lose that. The, um, the, the details. You lose the details. I mean, yes, that's true. Mm. But at least you can reasonably confident that a disease being coded with that particular code in this country will mean the same disease coded. I no, think I agree. I, you can't contrast. say that. You can't say that. So just be, you can be sure that something is coded the way it's coded. So if something is coded celiac disease, you can be sure that someone entered the code of celiac disease at some place. You cannot be sure on the data. You lose something when you do that. So you lose. Oh, no, I, I agree with you, Stephen. I don't think we disagree there. I mean, look at ICD ten classification. It's already ten years old, and um, I was trying to classify some of the uh, diseases that we diagnose in our hospital. And yeah, you can say people have an acute leukemia, but you know, nowadays we are much more sophisticated than just acute leukemia and classification systems will always be behind. I, I, I agree with you. I, I mean, look, look at it. I mean, I, when I did my PhD, I did an incident study on well, child brain tumors and mm-hmm. between 1979 and 1995, no children in this country, according to Hess, no, according to cancer registry, actually not has. According to cancer registry, had medulloblastoma. One of the one of the one of the um, the peanut tumor. It's a good but year. if you look at if you look at the embryonal tumor as a whole group, that's the correct incidence. So I mean, I think for for some period, I mean, in that period, some of those tumors being reclassified something within a bigger group. That's what happened. So you you, you lose details in that way. Yeah, because you just get but you then, just see a code. And that code, you you yeah. you have no idea on the confidence. So so to to get that code, you could have a massive set of data with a lot of professional opinions that go into making that code, or you could just have one blood test result, and that blood test result could have a really high mm-hmm. false positive rate, and you you lose that when you code something. You don't you have no idea of the confidence in that diagnosis once now it's the, coded. I mean, the, the problem is not only the coding, that the coarseness of the coding. Sometimes yeah. it's, it's a pathology definition. The pathologists themselves they cannot have a consensus of. I mean, if you've got some very new hematological cancer, it actually takes a while for pathology to say, well, that is X, not Y. Which is why I think so you should have a, a really... Before you even, even talk about coding it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 kind, I don't know whether we're talking about the same thing, Stephen. I mean, I see where you're coming from. If you just keep the raw data the whole time, yeah. and uh, definitions can be revised, and that's great. And of course, with coding, we will lose it. But I guess it depends on what the coding is for, isn't it? I mean, like, what is... Why, why was classifications created in the first place? Is to enable, you know, to, to facilitate research to a certain extent, is to uh, enable commissioning of services on a very, very high level. And I guess for coding for diagnosis for GPs and stuff, it's also, it's also about a, a kind of a, a memory hook or something that, that it's like a talking point. And I think when we spoke to Marcus about GP systems a while ago, what they are able to do in some systems, is that they can actually link uh, investigations or correspondence or what have you to decoded diagnosis so that at least they have the ability to go back to understand where the diagnosis come from. Yeah, I think that's the way things should be. Mm-hmm. But but then I always get into this, I, I, in a way, as always, I'm playing devil's advocate. I'm not, I don't sort of wholly believe in this and that's the, that's the way I think yeah. things should go. But I'm just sort of playing with the idea. And the more I think about it, I think this is, this is a way that things could go and maybe should mm-hmm. and it would solve a lot of problems. 
Um, and, and yes, things should be coded to allow comparisons, but at what point should that coding take place? Yep. So you, if you wanted to make a comparison, you could code on the fly, mm. you know, you could, you could, you could use the latest set of, um, criteria to make a diagnosis. No, there's some limitations. I mean, I don't think you, you can 100% do that. I, I think why you can, can, can tell us there's some leukemia which he could diagnose today that 20 year, years ago, actually, it doesn't exist in pathological science. Oh, yeah, it doesn't course. mean that it doesn't exist in people. Of course. So it's just, it's just not recognized at that time. And you will, you will not have data on those little, well, those details of, of, of that cancer that you can use today to recode. Because, I mean, they, we just did not know at that time, I mean, those details. Absolutely, yeah. So if you don't stain for something on, you know, yeah, on the it's cells, just you, it's yeah. just not there. Yeah. The data isn't there. So yeah. you can never always make that comparison. But where you can, I think you should. And, I, you know, the col- yeah, and, and of course, yeah, it, it's a tough one to answer. I, I don't know. But yeah. I think it brings out a lot of valid points. Um, so... I'm actually quite interested to hear because um, Thomas tells us he's a bit of an expert. Well, I don't know about expert. He has an interest <laughs> in, um, I know it's a bit of a change of tech about standardized mortality ratio. You know, the kind of stuff that we hear in the Daily Mail. You know, 5,000 people have died in these 10 hospitals unnecessarily. What are we going to do about it? Um, so, Thomas, uh, what do you think about all these controversies about standardized hospital mortality ratios then what shimmies and smhmrs and all these kind of things i'm not playing fire talking about it <laughs> in public <laughs> don't worry i think we got like two listeners my mum and ed oh really <laughs> <laughs> wow standardized mortality ratio they... what is okay. it okay mm? sorry what is it they Okay, I mean, they 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 are they are kind of a measure um, being produced. It's kind of statistic being produced to try to compare the quality of care between hospitals. It's been using, used that way using 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 using, using how likely. I mean, in, in a way, say how likely you're going to die after coming to hospital. Well, the, the first problem I have with, with it is the reason a patient die should it be all down to the hospital care that I mean that I mean the, 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 that the patient received while he or she is in hospital. Oh, no, that's, that's a big a, question. Yeah. yeah, that's a big question. I mean, I mean, you, I mean, if the answer is no, then comparing. Standardized mortality ratio uh, as as a the S, uh, yeah SMR as yeah. the as a as a marker of hospital care. I think is quite dangerous thing to do. It's never just a product of care in hospital, is it? It's got to do with no, the, no, the population it's, health, community care. I mean, there's a lot of um, population. Well, I mean, social determinants of health as well. I mean, is, in, isn't that taken into consideration? Isn't one of those correction factors things like social determinant of health, uh, and you know, previous uh, previous number of admissions? Is that not also called corrected for? You can. Well, I mean, you can. Okay, you can adjust for comorbidity. You can adjust for comorbidity, but I mean, unless you know everything about the social determinants of health. I mean, how can you fully adjust for it? Then you, you get some residual effect, well, residual confounding in, in more technical terms, the residual effect that you are not fully accounting for. And, and, and social determinants of health is, is, is such a... It's, yeah, it's, it's not, it's some, tough, it's not it? something that you can measure precisely. It's not like a hemoglobin level, that kind of thing. I mean, even if you say something like measure... Poverty. I mean, what what is poverty? Mm. And it's it's really tough because you can't even compare with the same area the year before. You know, you can't do any temporal calculations because you know there may have been an outbreak of flu in one year and not the other. You know, so if you take a, it's basically as I understand it, it's taking a bunch of people, you know, a cohort that you're interested in, comparing their mortality yeah. with a larger group, however that larger group is. I don't know how. To, so you're talking about the standard mortality ratio to use to compare. 
one hospital with another. And what is exactly. the general population? Is that uh, the population of the UK or, or well, England? They're, they're or? Actually, I, I think if I got it correctly, the, well, the, some of the trouble is, I mean, what well, this problem is, I mean, the, the method is not really open. So it's kind of a, a lot of people are kind of, a, mm, we, we guess that they did it that way. So, I mean, it actually makes a difference how they calculated that. And is, I the think method, is the method not published? It's, well, it, bits of it are published, but I mean, a lot of people have raised question of how it's being calculated and what it's actually doing. And I think the, the most recent one, they said they're actually comparing with the, the average in England. So, you mean, if you, if, you, if you compare each hospital with average in England, but then you, it, it doesn't take into account of ca- the, the case mix that goes in the hospital. I mean, if you take on easy cases, then you, you are likely to have a lower mortality. Are you talking about a surgical thing or are we talking about SHMR? Because I think those are very different. Uh, okay, let, I mean, I was, I was kind of um, talking a little bit more about comparison between institutions in general. Mm. Well, I mean, it's, in, it's hard, in, yeah. You know, between surgeons. I mean, you, you try to make that kind of comparison. But even for hospitals, though, I mean, I mean, I mean, it, it, it's likely, say, private hospital will have a lower mortality just because of the there's a very different case mix going to private hospital in this country than the NHS hospitals. I need. I think you need to take in, con- in context not just individual figures and results and comparing mm-hmm. one hospital to another. It's more the trends, isn't it? I suppose in a particular area, you know, if. if and, and people, sensible people need to look at it. If if there was a, a massive increase in mortality at one particular hospital, yeah. I think someone needs someone sensible needs to sit down with that data and 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 have a look at it and say, well, yeah, you know, there was a uh, a big incident or you know something happened, yeah. and try and explain away, test the hypotheses in much the way you would in a scientific experiment. I think so I've just think- found the data actually. Um, and so, do you think that it should act as a bit of the what you call a, a warning sign or a flag? Um, but that, that's its purpose, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it is its purpose. But well, the, I mean, me- the media is so good at turning that around into like some figure. I mean, I think Bruce Keel's recent report, I, I can't remember his exact line, and I'll, I'll try to find it, uh, but said very, very clearly that hospital mortality ratio does not help and perhaps actually hinder the whole discussions around, um, you know, quality qualities of hospital yeah exactly because as a patient you might see that you might think right i'm going to go on to dr foster or i'm going to read the daily mail or whatever you do and look at which hospitals have a higher mortality rate you know mortality than others and you think right i'm going to go to the hospital with the least mortality mm. because you've got a particular condition let's say it's a lung problem but actually the better place for your care might be the centre that sees lots and lots of sick people because the area is quite poor, the area is quite deprived and lots of people have this particular condition. Actually, you might be better served going to that hospital because they're used to dealing with lots and lots of sick people and your chances may be better because of their experience. You just don't know. Mm. Whereas if you go to the hospital who who has a, a very low incidence of this disease and therefore a low mortality in that particular area, then you, you know you might not fare so well. Well, I think I think um, in terms of disease and link to mortality, that is actually corrected quite a lot in, in the SHMR, um, from what I understand. But maybe we are talking. Of, I'm, I'm talking about something I don't fully understand. Yeah, the hospital uh, hospital standardised mortality ratios, I think, are. And if you go on to data.gov.uk slash data slash hospital underscore standardised underscore mortality ratios, mm. um, we will put that in the show notes. I guess um, you can get you can actually download all of the data, which is pretty cool. And there's a there's a JSON API and a unique resource for for developers, so you can do stuff with it. Good. Mm. But I guess the, it comes back to is death really the best <laughs> measure of a hospital's mm, quality? Um, and and of course about the coding thing. So there are exceptions uh, of things that are not counted as mortality. So um, there were hospitals who had a very high mortality ratio and they got consultants in to have a look at... Because I guess one of the things that we need to get away from and this is one of the big culture changes is that for many years, whenever a hospital has a high standardized mortality ratio, the first default position of the board is, oh my goodness, what's going on uh, in our practice? Instead, the first thing they think is, oh my goodness, are we not coding things correctly? Hmm. 
and that's the concern because you see certain hospitals where they they will become an outlier in SHMR, and within a month, it goes back to the middle. And you go like, how is it possible that you can change a whole service of a whole population within a month? Well, of course it's not. But if you actually look at what they changed was the amount of people that were flagged or coded as palliative. And patients like that, because they're expected to die and not counted. It's quite it's quite crazy, really. And and I think we need to think about much more meaningful measurement of things than just mortality. It's almost expected, though, isn't it? You know, you can't... <laughs> As... I mean, I mean, I mean. Okay, the, the the different ways of calculating. I think the most recent there's there's a there's a podcast on BBC more or less. Oh, that's an about, awesome show. Yeah, that's. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, actually, I actually haven't even got time to, to listen to that. that one. BBC Radio Four more All or right. less. There's All a right. recent episodes on this. Ho- well, hospital mortality measures. There are different ways of calculating those measures, and they got different. Proper names. I mean, we, we actually we probably have used the wrong name for those. I mean, I mean, okay. I mean, how we calculate them is, of course, of academic interest. But I think the problems of of, of I mean, the the, the the recent debate we got now is actually is is actually the people's attitude in using them or interpreting that there's yeah. causing problem rather than how we calculate them, to be honest. Yeah, it goes back to what we were saying on the last show. Like, as doctors, I don't yeah. really feel we have that much influence over what the public yeah. hears. Um, yeah. And it's up to the media to sort of use and abuse these kind of statistics to make headlines to sell papers. And I think that's just misleading and creating a kind of environment of healthcare mm. in the UK that's really damaging and not good for anyone. Yes, true. Apart from maybe newspaper publishers, but not when they go to hospital. So they write the stories, yeah. but when they go in, they are subject to all the same kind of healthcare that that, that we get, unless of course mm. their newspaper pays for their private medical insurance. <laughs> well, what what they're interested in is to sell more papers, do they? I, I Rather think exposing um, the truth. We are getting dangerously close to our our standard one hour mark, uh, and I thought, oh, I might... yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Oh, time uh, flies. We're enjoying this. Um, I was wondering, can I just change tack slightly and, and just bring something up? So at the end of last week, I went to a conference and it's uh, NHS England and UCL Partners organized conference called Future of Health. And one thing that was very different from this conference, has, and I've been to quite a few conferences in my life, was the the whole theme about it being patient-focused. So what I mean by being patient-focused was... Um, in every single session, and in, in, in the main sessions, there was a panel of, they call it patient's panel or people's panel, mm-hmm. who were people with long-term conditions, who were there to make sure that whatever the speakers were saying and stuff, they always had in mind, at the end of the day, who is this going to impact. Mm-hmm. And there were some really great um, people speaking on behalf of the patients, and it just got me thinking about measurement. They say that, the thing about data is that if you don't collect data properly and you make decisions based on just those data, data that you don't collect effectively don't exist. For example, if we just talk about mortality, blood pressures, cholesterol, um, blood test results, we are just measuring things which we as clinicians like. But we don't actually measure what really matters to patients, you know, quality of life, uh, their mood, their mobility, uh, their relationships with other people things that really matter when they're not seeing the doctors but things so it's just about collecting that information now we talked about models for icd-10 and all this kind of stuff but mm-hmm. actually what we're really bad at doing is measuring how well our patients are doing for things that matter to themselves not the hba1c not their blood systolic mm-hmm. blood pressure those are important but we are missing another aspect yeah like an extra layer of it and actually um, i'm not sure if i mentioned this on the show before but there is for research a uh, an organization called comet the core outcome measures in effectiveness trials and they're an initiative that that basically do that they they try and advocate for core outcome sets that matter to patients like what's Mm -hmm. the point in your hba1c being half a point better when you know you're still just as disabled as you were before that kind of thing absolutely absolutely yeah Mm. And um, and and also, I think there are some projects out there at the moment, which is quite interesting. There's this, um, I, I, I'll try to find it, but I one of the um, patients with a, a who's had kidney disease for many, many years, uh, he was telling me about this uh, project down south, which is led, I think, by the 
uh, nephrologist and a palliative care consultant uh, with together with the patients, they worked out what were the main symptoms that really affected uh, people with chronic kidney disease. So things like restless legs or gout or tiredness or low mood. And what they actually made sure they did was that in every clinical consultation, they actually recorded how well, you know, if anybody actually had the symptoms. And it was recorded as important as a blood test, as a diagnosis list. Mm. But what's interesting, they took it a step further, which is they actually give the clinicians guidance of what to do next when a patient comes to you with these symptoms. Which I thought was quite interesting because mm. I... One of the problems is that my hospital did this as well. Like before, when patients come into outpatients, before they came into the office, they, they were given a generic symptom list of things that they might want to talk to me about. And when they, I came, I had no warning about this whatsoever. And when they came and sat with me about their myeloma, I suddenly had this list that they were worried about their rash or they were worried about their eyesight and and the problem with this is that first thing you spring it upon the clinicians, which is I don't think it's always a good is is a good thing at all. <laughs> and then they don't tell me what to do next. Yeah. So you make me want to try to avoid the situation because I feel a little bit helpless. And then patients got really confused about it because they they're not used to it. And then in the end, I don't know whether I, I can see the good intentions of it, but I thought the key thing about this very unique project was they thought about you know, this is new to us. We need to help the people work through this and what to do next. And yeah, that's good. Like, I mean, you've inspired yeah. me. I'm going to do the same with my, uh, with the, the people that I see, I think. Because be I, I really think it's important. And I must say, yeah. um, and, and I'm going to just announce this, that the, you know, the Future of Health conference last week is the first of its kind. It's organized by a friend of mine. Uh, for the first time, I really felt that I was in a conference that really reminded me why am I, why I'm in this business, you know? And and it had a very different feel to it. And I hope to not ever forget that and hope to think whatever I do in the future, whether I'm designing an app, collecting information for databases or, or doing my clinic, that I, I I have that at the back of my mind. And perhaps we can end on that note. I don't know. I'm just trying to wipe away the tears. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I think I think we, it is a nice place to end. Um, I think you should remember that definitely when when you're in clinical situations, when you're designing a trial, or, or whether you're designing mm. a, an IT system. But mm. um, also mm. the sort of causality of effect. You know, if someone's feeling rubbish mm. and depressed, maybe that there's a you know biochemical reason for that so maybe oh, concentrating yeah. on the numbers and is is important in that situation and maybe you can't just fix it by asking them what's wrong um so yeah it doesn't replace traditional medicine but i think as you say it's really nice to have that in mind and uh, i think that that's not something that really people do i, I really like the idea of sort of defining you know what are the most uh common things that people are worried about with a particular condition and you can you can actually make someone feel a hell of a lot better just by making you know mm. just by making sure that they understand the the sort of what their disease is and the goals of treatment what's going to get worse what's not going to get worse those kind of things yeah and i think one of the um you know the people's panel said it best is like look we've got chronic disease you are not going to cure us from it so for goodness sake help us live our lives mm. <laughs> that's quite nice yeah yes so right thanks very much guys Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time. Check for pulse.